about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Okay, so this is Acts chapter 16, verses 12 to 18. From there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the woman who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira, named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. uh, So once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money from her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. This is the word of the Lord. Hi everyone, I'm Mick. Uh, If you're looking at your Bible, turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 27. If you've got one of these on your way in, it's way easier. Just open it. So this is part of the letter that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians gathered in Philippi. And from verse 27, he says this. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now he that I still have, he's in prison. ...from being united with Christ. If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Good evening. Great to be with you. My name is Matt, and I am one of the pastors here. If you're new visiting this evening, it's great to have you with us. You are more than welcome in this place. There are new people here every week, 
and we would just like you to feel at home among us. We are traveling through a book called Philippians, uh, which is addressed to Christians living in the ancient city of Philippi. And it's a positive letter, full of life and encouragement for these Christians to fully live into the way of Jesus Christ as it has been given to them. And that's a really helpful thing in our day and age as we consider what it is we are doing as a church and what we are supposed to do in these times and in these days. It's not always self-evident what a church is supposed to be these days. This was driven home to me last year in a conversation I had over the phone. We have people knocking on our door and calling for all types of reasons at church here. Some people are looking for the grave of their long-lost relative. Uh, Other people have serious needs that they want to ask us about and seeing if we can help them. Uh, This was one of those calls where someone working for the hospital was trying to connect a family with some help. Their relative was sick. They didn't have anywhere to go. They needed emergency uh, accommodation. And I really, my heart breaks for a family in that situation, obviously, but we we didn't have anything we could do. We didn't have any resources to help with a situation like that, particularly last year. Uh, We really couldn't help in that way. And I'm racing through my head trying to think of where I could send them to get help in this way. Um, But but I had to say, listen, I don't don't think we can help. I'm really sorry. Uh, Maybe there's somewhere I can point you to. She breathes out a deep sigh. She's very exasperated, pretty over these conversations she's been having and not finding help. And she just point blank almost yells down the phone at me. What are you here for then? And hangs up. Which leaves me for half an hour in my seat thinking about the conversation and about what I just did and whether I did it right or wrong and whether we could have helped or didn't help and that question looming over us all, which is a great question. What are we here for? What does it mean to be a church in this city, in this suburb, at this time for Jesus Christ? Isn't that the question we need to ask as a community? Isn't that a question you might be asking if you don't even, not sure if you love or trust Jesus yet? What is the church for? What is its place in society? Particularly in the West, when it feels like Christianity doesn't belong at the center of society anymore at all. What's our purpose? Why are we here? I think Paul answers that question tonight of purpose, of why we are here, of what we are to be on about, even in times like these. I want to explore that with you, but at the heart of what Paul wants to say is this, that we are here, you are here, for the sake of the good news of Jesus. For the sake of that saving news that He has saved a people and He will come again as Lord of all. We are here to serve Him and that message. Let's unpack what that means through this passage. Keep it open in front of you. And there's four things I want to tell you this evening, but the first thing is really the one thing that Paul wants to say. Uh, Oh, I... Forgot to put my slides in. Maybe Mike can go help me real quick. It's uh, also on your outline on the way through. Because the first thing that Paul wants to say is the main thing that Paul wants to say. And it's a bit obscured in the text. In the text it reads, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now that first phrase, whatever happens, obscures what Paul is saying. It literally says one thing. I have one thing. 
One thing for you. Thank you, Mike. You're a legend. One thing. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Here is the center of purpose for God's people. But do you notice how awkwardly phrased it is? Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy. It kind of feels a bit otherworldly and strange. And that's because it's a bit difficult to translate. It's a bit difficult to work out. Uh, The word underneath the word conduct yourselves is a strange word. And maybe you could translate it better as this. One thing, live out your citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel. Hidden under that little phrase, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy, is this idea of being a citizen, of belonging to a particular city, of having obligations and rights and prestige attached to that city and to your person. Paul uses similar language in Philippians 3 verse 20 where he says, Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Paul is emphatic in this letter that the city we belong to is the city, the eternal city of Jesus Christ. But see, in chapter 1, verse uh, 27, see how the words are similar? They start with the, the phrase polis, which is city, then the, the end is different. Uh, and in chapter 1, it's a verb, like citizenize. It's about acting out your citizenship, about acting in line with the prestige and identity a nation to which you belong. It's a statement about who we are and how to live in line with that. Now, you might be thinking, that is a very strange thing for Paul to say. Why is he saying this? And there's a very good reason why he's using it, and he only uses this language, really, with the Philippians. Now, Philippi, as we learned in Acts 16, was what's called a Roman colony. Now, not every city in the ancient empire was a Roman colony. A few of them were. Effectively, as Rome conquered and got to the edge of different parts of the world, it would garrison some of the troops in its army in a city and call it a colony. And that was a way of protecting the region, of keeping some Roman soldiers there. And the point of it was, those soldiers were to live in that vicinity as if they lived in the city of Rome. And so these cities carried a level of prestige and honor that other cities didn't. It's kind of like an embassy in a foreign nation that carries the authority and the prestige of its home nation. These were colonies. And so uh, uh, Philo said of uh, Philippi that it was Roman to the core, that people walked around thinking of themselves highly because they belonged to the eternal city of Rome. It dictated who they were and what they did as a city. They were a colony of Rome, and that dictated everything. But see what Paul wants to do to these Philippians who prize their Roman citizenship. What does he say? You are not chiefly a citizen of Rome. You are a citizen of heaven. This is not a colony of Rome belonging to Caesar. This is a colony of heaven belonging to Christ. And all that thinking you put into being Roman and living out what Rome means in this place needs to be subverted. And instead you need to live out your heavenly citizenship. It's beautiful what Paul's doing. He's playing on their identity. 
He's saying that they belong to a higher, greater, more wonderful city, even than Rome. And they are to consider themselves garrisoned there, not by Caesar, but by Jesus Christ for His purposes. And so the one thing He wants them to do is live as a worthy colony of heaven, knowing who they really are, belonging to Jesus Christ, and as it says in Philippians 3, awaiting for Him to come from heaven and rightfully claim Philippi and every part of the earth. One thing, live worthy of the gospel and of its Christ. But what does that mean? What is living worthy of Christ living as this heavenly colony, what does that actually mean for this Philippian church? Well, straight after that, he continues the sentence and explains, then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know what, what, what's so important, that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. What does it mean to live worthy of the gospel. What does it mean to live out your heavenly citizenship? It means striving together for the gospel. What it means is the Philippian church is to collectively and as one in a unity make their sole focus what he calls the faith of the gospel, which is a very strange phrase but speaks of the response that springs from hearing of who Jesus is is faith, dependence, trust. When you hear that Jesus has died for you to save you and is rightful Lord of all, the response should be faith. And the Philippians are to strive after building that faith. And the picture we get is of this unity in that purpose. Stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one, And notice how that word spirit has a capital S, that's referring to the Holy Spirit, that this is God's work of bringing them together into a unity, that this colony is a divine achievement, not a human task, that God has brought them into a unity at this time and at this place for that purpose. Now, this is really interesting when you dig into the details of the chapter of Acts. Did you hear that read out before? We had just a snippet of it, go read it later, the whole of Acts 16 tells you about the founding of the Philippian church. And what's really interesting to me in that chapter is the three converts we meet who come to know Jesus. Let me run you through the three converts real quick, because this is really interesting backstory. Convert number one is, full, uh, is in a lot of orthodox art, Lydia. Uh, the first convert to Christianity in Europe. And Lydia is a Gucci dealer. She's a purple cloth merchant, which means she's rich, connected. Uh, She travels around the known world dealing in expensive Prada products, right? She's a big deal. Most likely the church would have met in her house. But right after Lydia is converted, the next convert we hear of is this little girl who's a slave. And she can tell the future because she's full of an evil spirit. And Paul expels the spirit from her and frees her. This slave girl. That's great for her, bad for Paul. He gets thrown in prison for kind of getting rid of the spirit and making her not as useful to her owners. And that's bad for Paul, but great for the jailer who becomes a Christian as a result of being in prison. See, see, picture this. 
This is the Philippian church. Gucci, slave girl, and the jailer. This is Jesus Christ's church planting team, right? This is team Save Philippi. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't have picked it. I would have not have brought them together. But Jesus Christ, in the power of the Spirit, brought these three together to found his church. And to do what, among with others? To strive together for the faith of the gospel. Which is kind of a picture of a Roman legion who are advancing shield to shield together, whose strength is from their collective presence, from their ability to be close to one another and move as one together. Or of two athletes training together for that to win the prize in the same games. It speaks of the, the teamwork that makes church, the collective, not the individual. How these three and those others in Philippi were summoned to form a team in the power of God's Spirit that strived as one together with one purpose, that they and others responded to the good news that Jesus was the Christ who was forgiving sin. It's a great picture. You see, the church does not need a cause. It does not need to pick from the various things that exist in our world and choose on one and decide it. We have been given one by, by Jesus Christ himself in the power of his spirit. We are his garrison here in this city, in this suburb. And we are summoned in the power of that same spirit to strive for the faith of the gospel. That is why we are here. That is why you are here. This is the cause that we are to bleed for. This is why Jesus has gathered churches in every place in this city and across his whole world, that we might live worthy of him by striving together for the gospel. And Paul is believe it or not, realistic about that. That that is not simple. And that being about Jesus in the world and about the proclamation of his name and his lordship would not be a simple thing in Rome where there already was a Caesar and a Lord. And nor is it simple now when we feel like Christianity has been pushed to the edge of the culture. Even when it gets hard, we are to continue in this purpose. I don't know, do you feel afraid to be a Christian sometimes at the moment? Do you feel a bit intimidated by our culture, by its behemoth strength, by ideas that seem to outstrip their logic, by a ferocity of rhetoric, by the possibility of exclusion, by the possibility of loss? Striving as one for Jesus as a heavenly colony, as his garrison, may cause opposition and may lead us feeling afraid. But Paul wants to encourage us that part of being worthy, of living worthy, of conducting ourselves worthy of the kingdom, is not being frightened in any way. By which I don't think he means you're never supposed to ever feel afraid of things or we're never supposed to feel intimidated but that even when it gets complicated even when you feel pushed to the margins 
that you stick to the purpose, that you stick to the striving, that in the power of your spirit, you stand firm and steadfast, that the biggest thing that matters is that Jesus Christ is Lord. We are summoned to continue with a strength of purpose as his heavenly garrison. And he even goes further to suggest that when suffering comes, that we need not be concerned about that either. It's a sign, he says, of salvation for us and destruction for others. This whole picture of a unified people advancing without fear toward an objective, is, it's a sign of God being at work and the opposition of their opposition to God's work and of a sign of an ultimate fate. But also, he wants to say that anything we suffer is in a strange way a gift, he says in verse 29. For it has been granted, literally graced, given to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, to have faith in Him, but also to suffer for Him. It is grace, he says, if you suffer for Jesus. And the phrase he uses, suffering for Him, on behalf of Christ, is the language normally given in the New Testament for how Jesus suffers for us. Jesus suffers on our behalf, for us. And yet when suffering befalls the church as it does its mission, it is given the opportunity to suffer on behalf of its Savior. And so so we need not be disoriented by when things get wrong and complicated and difficult. We may instead consider them grace. The gift of not only trusting in Jesus, but looking like Jesus, our suffering Messiah. If, it, if we belong to His kingdom, then we may look as He does, suffering and lowly. But we are to strive together, even when it gets hard. But, but what, do we, what do we do with this? What do we do with this purpose? How is it that we, in the power of God's Spirit, can come together as one, striving, living worthy of this heavenly citizenship? How does that actually happen? And beautifully, as, at the, as chapter 2 begins with a therefore, connecting what's going to come from what just happened, we're given this beautiful picture, this exhortation to be unified in, the, in this one purpose. It's a beautiful exhortation, and it kind of builds up. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ and any comfort from His love, if you've felt any stirrings and sharing of God's Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, see how He's laying it on. If you know anything of the gospel, anything of what I've been talking about, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind. He's summoning them to unity summoning them to come together in the gospel they've experienced. And then he lays out what to do, how to get it going. And you expect him to say, okay, here's the strategy. Fire up your convictions. Consider, re-strategize this. Get your shields ready. He doesn't say any of that. What does he say? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. 
What is the great move that builds the unity of the church and advances the gospel? It all comes down to humbly considering others. Isn't that a profound thing he says here? That actually the spiritual health of the church comes down to the way you humbly consider the person next to you. To whether you're filled with your own ambition, your own longing for prestige, your own longing for honor, your own longing for yourself and your things and your place, or whether you're also full of their interests next to you. In the Roman world, it was all about elevating self, gaining prestige and honor, and advancing your own interests. But in the kingdom of heaven, it is about humbly lowering yourself and filling your heart not just with your interests, but the interests of others. And Paul's not talking about this complete self-effacing and never having a thought about yourself and this kind of deprivation of self. He's He says it very clearly, not just your interests, but their interests as well. It's about Gucci thinking about what life might need to look like for the slave girl now. It's about Jayla trying to work out how to help Lydia have church in her house now that it's going to be in her McMansion. It's about us being interested in each other. Enough to actually hear what's going on in our faith and in our life. And not just being about us, but about each other and about Jesus. Church is not for you. Church is about Jesus. Church is not about me and I. It is about us. And the us that Jesus needs is only built by small, simple acts of humble interest. That is the beautiful, simple truth that Paul says moves the whole purpose of the church forward. How easy is it to... I've been reflecting on this, me and my house. It's so easy for me to make my family about me, about what I want to do, about what I need to happen this week, about the big things I want to get done this year or this five years. I've noticed this selfishness creep. How much more easy is it for me to walk into this place and expect it to be about me, about what I need, about what I need this year and in five years' time? But friend, it is not about you. The purpose of this place is not you, but Jesus. And the way we build a a humble, unified community, advancing for His sake, even when it hurts, is about the way you consider the people around you. Because, friend, do you know that the citizen of heaven, there was only one, Jesus Christ, had all the honor and prestige imaginable, and yet did not consider his own interests, but yours. And so came down from heaven, you who had no home, who had no eternal citizenship, who was stricken and stripped and nailed and rejected by all nations, that he might make you a citizen with him. You see, living worthy of his gospel means taking on his mind and heart and together advancing unified for the sake of his name. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, we pray today that you would knit us together afresh, that you would help us lay aside our self-interestedness, our obsession with our own things, and that we today would take on instead the interests of Jesus Christ and the interests of our neighbor. And Father, we pray that through a, a thousand acts of listening and of interest, that we would grow to be more than just individuals and become a unified community, ready to advance for your glory and name. And we pray you begin that in us tonight, for Jesus' sake. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.